0: This is a podcast from the Kaldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.kaldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Resettlement is a life-saving tool. It's a way that countries like Australia can help refugees and their families to find safety. In their resettlement country, refugees can build a new life and create a new home while enjoying a secure and long-lasting legal status. This year, for the first time, UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, and IOM, the International Organization for Migration, had to suspend resettlement departures for refugees. With COVID-19 resulting in border closures all around the world, the organisations had little choice. While the resumption of resettlement has just been announced, many refugee families have been separated, and it's unlikely that UNHCR will be able to meet its goal to resettle 70,000 refugees this year. Today we're going to hear from an expert panel about where we are and what we can expect, including at the UN's upcoming annual tripartite consultations on resettlement. I'd like to welcome each of our speakers before proceeding to our initial discussion, followed by questions from the audience. Kate O'Malley is the senior policy advisor to the UNHCR multi-country representation in Canberra. Prior to this, she held two global UNHCR roles. In 2018, she was engaged in promoting third country solutions for refugees to advance the global compact on refugees. And before that, She led UNHCR's resettlement service as deputy director in the Division of International Protection in Geneva at UNHCR's headquarters. Earlier, Kate spent more than 20 years in the Australian government working in the migration and foreign affairs portfolios. Sally Pfeiffer is the Assistant Secretary Humanitarian Program Capability Branch in the Department of Home Affairs. The branch implements government policy in relation to refugee and humanitarian visas and Australia's international non refoulement obligations, and also manages the delivery of the annual refugee and humanitarian program intake. Since joining the Australian Public Service in 2002, Sally has held roles in the Australian Government Information Management Office and the Department of Finance and Administration before moving to the Department of Immigration in 2007. Paul Power has been the CEO of the Refugee Council of Australia, which is the national umbrella body for 200 agencies working with refugees and people seeking asylum, since 2006. Paul leads the Refugee Council's policy development and public education on refugee issues, as well as its advocacy with the Australian government, international networks and UNHCR. Since 2012, Paul has served as a steering committee member of the Asia-Pacific Refugee Rights Network, known as APRN. He previously served as a member of the Australian Government's Refugee Resettlement Advisory Council and as co-chair of the Global Working Group on Resettlement and the Annual Tripartite Consultations on Resettlement. Dr. Malika Sheikh-Elden is Ames Australia's manager of international and community development and is responsible for ongoing dialogue and capacity building partnerships with refugee communities and sector organisations for Ames Australia. After fleeing war from Eritrea in the late 1970s, she completed a doctorate, set up refugee-centred social enterprises and helped thousands of new arrivals to Australia to settle successfully. Malika has been instrumental in developing world-leading settlement programs, and she represented Australia at the UNHCR annual consultations, fora and conferences. Malika has sat on the board of the Refugee Council of Australia since 2007, and she's currently a member of the gender audit team at UNHCR in Geneva. So welcome to our four experts. We have a stellar lineup for you. And I would now like to um, ask my first question to Kate O'Malley from UNHCR. Kate, can you tell us why is resettlement important from UNHCR's perspective? And broadly speaking, what has the impact of COVID-19 been on resettlement around the world?
1: Jane and thanks also to the Cardall Centre for having uh, this event today. I think it's a a very topical matter at the moment. It's a concern to a lot of individuals, but I think for a lot of um, organisations and others who have been really strong advocates in this area. I mean resettlement, uh, for those who are not overly familiar with it, is often contextualised within the sort of three durable solutions that we talk about um, in UNHCR, one being voluntary repatriation, the other local integration in the country of asylum. And then resettlement sort of reserved. Sometimes it's the third durable solution for really um, attending to those individuals, those refugees who won't be able to sort of find a solution elsewhere, who are not thriving in their, their country of asylum and are at, at risk in that particular, in that particular context. Um, so we, we often think about it um, as uh, in line with UNHCR's mandate as both sort of assisting us with the solutions area of responsibility, and also the protection area of responsibility. So we sometimes talk about it as a protection tool, which is a, means it's a tool that we use for particular acute cases, where we really need to move somebody often quite quickly through an emergency process, uh, remove them out of uh, away from that risk when their life and their liberty their safety um, are at risk. So for example, we might have refugees who are in a detention situation where we might be able to negotiate for their release from detention if we can put if we can move them on to a, a resettlement country. Um, there might be a serious health concern, the health concern of a child, where we're really going to see a loss of life if we don't move people. So it, it is a really critical tool in terms of protection tool, in terms of a life saving tool. And then we often speak also of it as a durable solution. So in large protracted refugee situations where um, the ability to provide some resettlement for some some parts of that uh, refugee community is an assistance not only to those individuals, but also to the broader uh, protection landscape. So we can negotiate perhaps more with the government to be able to provide more access to registration or more access to uh, land, for example, if we can demonstrate um, that we are also um, bringing in the support of the international community. So that sort of tangible expression um, by the rest of the world who are not at the borders of big refugee displacement scenarios is, is often delivered through resettlement. And perhaps you know, in an overarching sense, we often talk about the, the notion of the strategic use of resettlement, which is when we really will go in and, and talk about if we can move that part of the population, can you provide um, access to you know, registration? So there's been large, um, negotiated some uh, internationalized efforts in uh, resettlement in the past that have really aimed to provide protection to a particular, particular group um, through some negotiation. Um, and, and I would just add that, you know, resettlement was also something from in terms of it being a, um, a burden-sharing tool, a responsibility-sharing tool. It wasn't just about the hosting countries. It was also the extent to which, when resettlement started to be generated by the kind of, you know, ten countries that were quite active in it twenty-five years ago, it was also a recognition that certain countries that happened to not be on the border of anywhere um, could actually make a heavy lift. By doing resettlement because they don't have the same asylum burden. For example, you know that you might see, you know, in the, in contemporary contexts like Germany, where where you know last year they were granted um, 90,000 asylum um, grants to, to refugees on their territories. So again, it's it's also an opportunity for countries that are not so impacted to be able to to, to make a contribution. Um, when we think about resettlement, we've got categories that we refer people under: women at risk, victims of uh, torture and violence for example, and each of those individual adjudications um, are very time consuming. Obviously, we first have to establish that the person is a refugee, but also then really, the extra lift for resettlement is that you meet these kind of criteria which relate to vulnerability. Um, So needless to say, it's a really desirable outcome for refugees in terms of a solution, but it would be true to say that um, very, very, very few refugees get access. Less than half a percent of the world's refugees were resettled in 2019, so it's it's a really tiny number uh, relative to the need. Uh, in terms of COVID, I guess yes, it has been a you know a, 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 um, an additional heavy burden on a on a on a process and a program that's already constantly struggling to sort of. Meet the needs to 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 reach targets to uh, to do this work that UNHCR does with the states to encourage them to respond to the actual needs uh, the protection needs the pro- the profiles of the refugees which are sometimes quite you know can be more difficult for certain states. So the, the COVID scenario has has as it has in the in the globe more generally you know created this exacerbated state of um, uh, concern uh, for refugees. And we know at the moment there's around 10,000 refugees have been impacted in terms of suspension of their travel. And as you mentioned, Jane, we're hoping that, you know, with a kind of uh, a heavy lift from all of us, uh, including the world's kind of transit countries that need to be able to open up to facilitate travel, that we can see some of that recommencing. In the meantime, of course, you have a lot of. Um, uh, very anxious refugees who have been probably waiting considerable time, perhaps years, uh, perhaps decades for a resettlement outcome, who of course um, have been devastated by what happens when all of a sudden you get this suspension scenario. So there's been quite a bit of counselling of refugees trying to keep them in the loop. But again, the extent to which you can provide much certain information at the moment is quite limited because we are really, um, you know, one border opens, how can we move through that? For UNHCR ourselves it's impacted our own workforce, it's impacted our own ability to be able to do a lot of direct interviewing, but it's also impacted states' ability to do processing. Many, Most states, really, the majority of the scenarios for processing involve states going to where the refugees are interviewing the refugees undertaking these adjudications perhaps doing health screening um, you know the documentation that's required the exit procedures that are required which require the hosting states uh, officials to be in action um, and the and the resettlement states you know consulates and embassies all of these services which are part of the kind of logistical wraparound resettlement have been impacted um, by by the COVID uh, um, situation. So it has really made it quite dire. I think what we're doing now, um, as we are, I guess, more generally uh, it, with COVID, which is trying to find a way forward in, in this new reality. Um, but I would say, you know, we've had some good responses still to emergency cases. We have been moving cases here and there. The numbers have been small, but we have seen um, states really thinking about how they can respond flexibly to the situation, which has been really positive.
0: Thank you, Kate. That's a really good overview for us and has set the scene, so I appreciate that. Sally, I'll turn to you now. Could you tell us a bit about what's happened to Australia's resettlement program since um, the pandemic hit and what you envisage will be the outlook for Australia's resettlement program in 2020 to 2021? Will Australia consider giving special dispensation for people to travel for resettlement in spite of border closures with appropriate quarantine, for example? Okay. Thank you,
2: Jane. Um, and I'll just echo Kate's comments that I appreciate um, the Caldwell Centre's time in, in bringing everyone together and allowing us to do this presentation and appreciate everyone's time in coming along to listen. So COVID has hit the humanitarian resettlement program very hard. It, it's There's no two ways around that. Um, and it's, you know, we've got the double um, sort of impact of Um, Obviously, it it impacts our ability to undertake our processing, but then also in the way uh, that with the border closures, that has meant that we've been unable to move people to Australia. So that has been um, very challenging. And we have tried to look at ways that we could move and and change how we operate to um, be able to adjust to this, this sort of current situation. So we, uh, consistent with other decisions of uh, the Australian government to limit the spread of COVID, we and, and the practical limitations around travel to Australia were happening at the time, we paused uh, granting of all offshore humanitarian visas on the 19th of March. And we have not, um, as a wholesale um, approach, commenced recommenced considering offshore humanitarian visas since that time. We have, however, um, continued to consider some of those emergency visas cases that Kate mentioned earlier um, and continue to look at those. And those have afforded us a really good opportunity to test some of our abilities to do use new technologies such as uh, video. Links and conferencing, some of our ability to maybe use more flexible approaches in terms of how we do medical screening and those sorts of considerations, but also um, collection of biometrics and a a few other things like that. And and that's involved us um, really reaching out and working with our partners in UNHCR and IOM in particular to make sure that we've got facilities and arrangements set up to be able to do that. Although on a very small scale, the the use of, um, you know, the ability to look at those emergency visas has allowed us to sort of test some of those those technologies in different ways to doing, um, approaching how we might be able to do things, which has been very heartening. But in terms of the actual um, 2019-20 humanitarian program, we will not fully deliver the program. It's given the environment globally, um, the steps um, and checks that are required. We've just won't be able to complete our program for this year. So our program is um, normally 18,750 people um, for our annual program. A component of that is our onshore um, program and and, uh, the larger larger proportion is our offshore program. So we will, when we sort of paused um, granting, we had completed about two thirds of our annual target for our offshore program. And we fully completed our onshore component, um, so we were able to continue to um, process those cases and, and manage to do those as well. So um, it's very disappointing for our teams, and, and we're obviously disappointed that we won't be able to achieve our, our full program. But um, with that, with the situation the way it was, it was it was really not going to be feasible for us to be able to do that. It's also meant that people that have been granted but had not yet travelled were unable to arrive in Australia, which is also been obviously disappointing for us and very challenging for us to manage. It is our intent that we will look at um, moving people as quickly as we can. And with the recent um, sort of uh, new announcements with IOM uh, and UNHCR, saying that we, you know, there is um, a lifting of, of some of the restrictions and we should be able to um, move again, that we've started to look at those, particularly with a focus on those emergency cases, because as Kate said, um, they're obviously in, in very uh, critical risk. So we're really looking at um, moving them most quickly to move them out of a, a danger situation. So um, we're starting to look at that process at the moment. However, uh, as well as with uh, everyone else who wishes to travel to Australia at this time, um, anyone who wishes to come here is basically, unless they're Australian citizen or a permanent resident, they have to be given an exemption under the border measures. Holders of refugee and humanitarian visas are not actually permanent residents unless they've already entered Australia. So the permanent residency is only enlivened once people have entered Australia. So people who are XB holders who have not yet travelled to Australia are not able to enter Australia without an exemption um, for the border closure at this time. So there are certain exemptions that could definitely be considered for people who are a, a Class XB holder, so that would be um, including if they have an immediate family member, uh, so a spouse, a de facto, a, a partner, dependent child, legal guardian, those sorts of things of an Australian citizen or permanent resident. So um, there, and that person is usually resident in Australia, or there is a compassionate and compelling reason to travel. Um, And that definition of compassionate and compelling is available in the exemptions process and people can go online and have a look at that exemptions process and, and see if they can seek an exemption under that basis. We are very conscious that people with those, um, uh, the lack of ability to um, travel, that people have an entry expiry date recorded on their visa grant notice. We're looking into that and and once our borders do reopen and we can do more international travel, we'll review that, uh, those conditions and and look at changing those arrangements so that we can make sure that people are still able to travel and and, um, that that travel can be facilitated. So we're definitely looking at that. I think um, Jane, you also asked about the sort of what does this mean for the future of our program. At this stage, uh, there is no real uh, capacity for us to roll over any shortfall in this year's program into the next year's program, uh, and that's because it's set by cabinet. The, the full figures are set by cabinet each on a yearly basis, so it's it's not that's something that we have explored, but that's not really feasible. And um, I'm not sure if people are aware outside the Canberra bubble, but um, it You know, the budget has been pushed back to October, which means that setting the program for this now, as of two days ago, current program year, so the 2020 2021 program year, is is subject to that budget process. So that has meant that we, um, uh, you know, that pushes back our ability to set the program for this year slightly. But what it does mean is that while that's happening, we are focusing very much on. Um, having cases be ready for the process to recommence uh, and moving um, towards uh, making sure that we've got all those flexible arrangements in place that would allow us to continue to operate even if this COVID environment continues over um, the coming months or or potentially even longer. So uh, for us, we're very much in a um, sort of planning and and re-litigating how we operate to make sure that we're ready to go as soon as we have that capacity.
0: And Sally, could I just clarify something with you, I was thinking about it and then a question also popped in. Um, You mentioned that you would completed two-thirds of the target for the offshore component for, well now last year, but 2019 to 20, Mm -hmm. um, and you'd fully completed the onshore component. So does that mean that there's still a third of the offshore visas that just won't be used if you like, or or would they be then um, given to people onshore perhaps instead?
2: Um, unfortunately, because of the way it
0: is structured, we can't move on,
2: offshore to onshore. So we haven't been able to um, move that, um, those visas to, to an, the, the onshore program. So um, we've um, met all of the onshore component, which is 1,650 of, of the total number, is the onshore component. We've done all of those, um, but we weren't able to
0: move them. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. I'll turn now um, to Malika. What's been the impact of the cessation initially and, or, you know, slowing down of resettlement for refugee communities in Australia? Thank you, Jan. Uh,
3: The impact of cessation uh, or the slow uh, of resettlement for refugee communities in Australia is very significant. And it includes, you know, financial impact. Uh, Refugee communities in Australia have been the main source of support for their families who are stranded in refugee camps and in other asylum countries. Now, many lost their jobs and are unemployed, so sharing their scarce resources with their families puts them in a very dire financial uh, situation. Family sponsorship and the resettlement process in general is very long and incurs uh, heavy costs on the refugee community members. Uh, For example, by the time the corona pandemic stops, Many refugee families will have their medical checkups expired and need to repeat them all over again, creating a big financial pressure and making the refugees um, uh, more worried. Uh, as far as he- the health impact is late engagement of refugee community members in um, uh, is raising uh, or in raising awareness about the pandemic and its impact made them less uh, prepared to coordinate their relatives' sponsorship, creating a lot of of confusion, anxiety, and stress. There is quite a number of refugee community members who are themselves infected, so they are not in a position to follow up with what's happening with their relatives' cases. Uh, Psychological, the psychological impact of include Some members may have already lost loved ones due to the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, while waiting for resettlement, creating a sense of grief, helplessness, and depression. Um, Also, uh, not knowing how and where to go for information about immigration updates or services, and the uncertainty of um, knowing what is happening uh, to their dear family members and friends affected their mental health and well-being. There is also a psychosocial impact. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, refugees here in Australia have lost a very important or a very supportive mechanism that helps them with life burdens in their new country. This is the usual community gathering and informal contacts with their peers and friends. This opportunity to connect Um, have been limited because of the stay at home and social distancing uh, guidelines creating a sense of isolation and loneliness. Uh, There is also uh, the feeling of belonging. uh, Separating family members between different countries and delaying family uh, reunion, sending negative messages to uh, refugees in Australia, uh, that their country, Australia, is not supporting their loved ones. The research evidence also shows that long period of family separation with uncertain timelines for family reunion is a major obstacle to successful resettlement and identification with their new country. And then there is a service provision. Also uh, pre-COVID-19, there was uh, difficulty for refugee communities to link up with existing services due to language, culture, understanding the system, and also absence of trust. Uh, Now that these these services are turning online, it's adding a burden to those refugees because they lack the technology uh, know-how. Some individuals and families do not also have access to uh, devices to join online meetings. Others do not have uh, you know, like access to home internet or sufficient data for uh, video calls, etc. Uh, etc. So um, I'll just answer some questions if there are any. Thank okay, you. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Malika. Um, we'll turn to Paul and then we'll um, go to some more questions from, from the audience. Paul, could you please tell us what do the civil society organisations that you work with see as a priority for resettlement once travel resumes?
4: Thank you, Jane. Um, I think everyone who's involved in refugee resettlement in Australia wants to see the resettlement program return to normal as quickly as possible. Um, I think it's important in the the broader discussion about um, the migration program um, to remember that the offshore resettlement program, um, which is I mean, the target um, in recent years has been 17,100 of the 18,750 permanent refugee visas. You know, that's actually quite a a very small proportion of Australia's population. It's less than one-tenth of one percent of Australia's um, uh, population of 25 million. Um, And it's also, of course, um, less than one-tenth of one percent of um, the current figure of uh, 26 million refugees around the world. Um, and it's certainly feasible for Australia to be receiving refugees at the moment. I think you know all of the um, points which um, Sally has mentioned about exemptions being required and you know caps on uh, the onshore protection program and the like. I mean these are political decisions, um, you know, which are certainly within the power of the the minister and the cabinet. Um, to modify these decisions, and we can see that resettlement is possible, um, and in fact, Australia is benefiting from the United States um, resumption of resettlement um, with the resettlement of uh, 63 refugees since May from the uh, Ruin Papua New Guinea, and of course, people on the line would be aware, you know, that this um, resettlement of, uh, you know, from uh, to the United States from Australia's uh, offshore processing regime. Um, is the work of an ally that is um, being supportive of of Australia um, and has actually, in fact, um, intervened, as we heard at a previous Kautau Centre event when Anne Richard, the uh, former US Assistant Secretary of State for Population, Refugees and Migration, spoke, um, that this gesture was, in fact, motivated by the Obama administration's concern about the way in which Australia um, and its Pacific partners were treating the refugees. So we're currently benefiting from... um, a very positive example of refugee resettlement happening during a pandemic, in, you know, to the United States under much more difficult circumstances than we face here. So I think you know we should be um, encouraged by that example um, and and really uh, look at every option to resume resettlement um, to support refugees who are living in in quite dire circumstances. And I think you know we've seen. Um, the destitution which is happening for people on temporary visas in Australia, uh, you know, it's a great concern, which um, you know, we're, the Refugee Council and many other organisations are concerned that the Department of Home Affairs and the government is not actually taking this issue seriously. But the destitution that refugees are facing in um, major host countries um, is even more significant. And I think it's a compelling reason for Australia to resume its resettlement program as quickly as possible. Uh, Jane, you mentioned the annual tripartite consultations on resettlement. And in fact, the dialogue has just recently finished. It was held um, as a virtual uh, dialogue you know, with nine meetings, the last one being on Tuesday. And last week, the UNHCR released its global resettlement needs document uh, for 2021, showing that the number of refugees in priority need of resettlement, according to UNHCR, is at an all-time high. It's now 1.45 million. Um, And of course, you know, the the major problem, um, well, I suppose there's two problems with that figure. One is that uh, everyone knows that there are many more refugees uh, for whom resettlement is the only viable option. Um, But the second problem is that so few refugees actually get access to resettlement. So last year, last calendar year, just 107,000 refugees were resettled um, and only 63,700 of them through um, UNHCR's referral process, and I think as, as Australia resumes its resettlement program, that's actually one issue um, which needs further examination. Um, the fact that Australia has quite significantly moved away from uh, UNHCR referral um, as its main source of um, resettled refugees, you know, in the six years to 2018-19, so from 2012-13 to 2018-19, the proportion of UNHCR referred refugees resettled by Australia dropped from 80% to 23%. Um, And uh, and while it's certainly um, necessary for Australia to have some element of its program, uh, which enables refugees to be referred through other processes, it's quite clear that UNHCR is in the best position of any organisation to identify those in greatest need of resettlement. So we, we'd certainly uh, like to see that um, reversed. Um, we're also, you know, looking forward to the review, which starts this month of the community support program, you know, the 1000 places of private sponsorship um, under the current arrangements that governments come up with. I mean, clearly that program has failed in a way that we don't see with resettlement programs elsewhere. Um, I mean, one of the, uh, consistent factors of refugee resettlement around the world is that any program uh, that's put forward is oversubscribed and oversubscribed very quickly. Uh, the community support program still hasn't managed to even fill any uh, of its annual quotas of 1,000 places, so has has fallen short um, in the years that the program has existed. I mean, so that's a clear symbol that the um, you know there are unbearable cost burdens and unrealistic conditions being placed through that program. So we certainly look forward to a review um, of that program. And there's a a broad hope and expectation um, that uh, we will move to some form of community sponsorship based on the excellent models which have um, existed in Canada for some time and are now um, thriving in the UK, Ireland, New Zealand and elsewhere. And I think what we're also seeing is that there's a lot of um, growing support for um, community sponsorship as a supplement to australia 's annual program people would want to, this to be in, in addition um, to the government 's commitment um, and we can see that ourselves at the refugee council we 're involved in a, um, receiving donations for um, to support the resettlement to Canada of refugees from uh, nauru and Papua New Guinea and um, you know our organization hasn 't been uh, strongly uh, promoting that appeal for donations, um, because we want to make sure that the the donations um, flow at a a rate that's um, appropriate to the opportunities that are available in Canada. Um, But we've received uh, $2.2 million in eight months in donations from Australians, and I I know for sure um, that as the opportunities continue with the Canadian sponsorship that, you know, um, significantly more funds will be committed. So, I mean, there's clearly uh, I mean, that's a clear symbol of the fact that Australians are interested in community sponsorship, Australians are interested in refugee resettlement, and that many people and many organisations really want to get back to business as normal as quickly as possible.
0: Thanks very much, Paul. And and look, seeing we're on that question of community sponsorship, I might just um, turn to Sally and ask her about that very thing. I mean, what does the Australian government see as the role of community sponsorship and other complementary pathways to protection post-COVID-19? And are any changes to the current program being considered?
2: Thanks, Jane. Um, So we, the Australian government definitely supports commitments um, to increase private or or community sponsorship programs um, as an alternative to the humanitarian um, channel. And we do think that that's somewhere that we should be expanding. Um, The government committed to conducting a review of the community support program in 2020, and that work has commenced and is ongoing at the moment. Um, And um, so there's there's work being done in that space now, um, and that uh, continue will continue and hopefully be completed. It will definitely be completed by the end of this year, but hopefully completed shortly. Um, So we're working through that at the moment. I I do think, um, as Paul mentioned, there are some really good models um, in other countries. Canada is obviously a standout in in their community model um, and the community sponsorship model that they have there. Um, Do I think that we can go straight to something like that? Probably that might be... bridge too far for us, but I think there are definitely changes that we could look at in the current community sponsorship program um, and look at how we could um, broaden the scope of that model and and really look at um, targeting um, particular um, needs. Um, So, there's um, consideration of things uh, regional, um, uh, you know, working, um, skilled visas, those sorts of things. Um, We did commence um, a pilot Um, of uh, using a skilled uh, visa framework to sponsor um, skilled workers who've been displaced from their home environments. Um, And that will continue um, on the uh, post-COVID environment. Um, At the moment, it's it's stalled because of COVID. um, But, you know, I think that that was really starting um, to demonstrate our commitment to looking at alternatives to a... Um, the current sort of community sponsorship model and and looking at where we can identify opportunities um, to leverage need, um, particularly skills need, uh, and tie that to um, individuals who have uh, humanitarian needs as well. So, um, that's, you know, the direction that we're looking in um, and um, really looking to make sure that we can... um, Look at all those options, and, and I'm sure people are already aware. But um, the Coordinator General, um, Alison Larkins, was appointed in December 2019. And one of, uh, you know, part of uh, the Coordinator General role is to provide that national leadership on driving better results uh, for migrants in humanitarian entrants, um, and in terms of their settlement outcomes, um, but also looking at labour market opportunities, um, English language, and uh, integration into the broader community. So all the things that we think are really well supported by the idea of having a community-sponsored model as well. Um, So, and that work will continue, Alison's work will continue um, and is continuing, um, and um, very keen to see the outcomes from some of that work.
0: Thanks very much for that, Sally. Well, you mentioned Canada as being, um, as having a well-established community sponsorship program, and Canada is often a comparator country that is used. Um, But there have been many other examples um, that have come up during the pandemic of good practices from all over the world. And Kate, I wondered whether you might be able to tell us what some of those good or innovative practices
1: have been in relation
0: to resettlement during COVID-19.
1: So I think um, in relation to resettlement, as opposed to the development of great new um, programs abroad, which I have to say is great to see, and it is um, definitely growing. And uh, there's a lot of energy around that in, in different circles, which is positive, I think, in terms of international comparative work going on as well. But on the on the COVID side, like all um, you know, difficult scenarios, it does lead to some invention. And um, But I would say more generally, resettlement is actually quite hard to pull off. You know? So states have to work with UNHCR, have to work on the ground, often in difficult situations, to transfer an individual who has to be medically cleared, etc. So it's never been a particularly a straightforward logistical exercise Um, And, you know, meeting the requirements of different states' interests and needs has always been quite challenging. Um, What I think we have seen in the COVID context, and and this includes for UNHCR, has had to think about its own practices and working remotely while managing important safeguards like identity management um, and ensuring that we're addressing issues that might be fraudulent, for example. But things like um, what we would call dossier submissions. And in fact, there's a number of countries that have always had these dossier programs, which is an ability for UNHCR just to pass the papers on a a file. So a file on a case, which is accepted, As UNSCR's adjudication, it meets the requirements of the state and there's no additional interview. The person is accepted on that dossier and then um, is is organised to travel. So we've seen um, a bit of that happening. Um, For example, the UK program doesn't do any of this interviewing. They've always taken dossier cases. They would do some remote interviewing as necessary. So in some ways we've just seen a little bit more of an expansion of some of those practices uh, and also practices that would normally have been used in the context of emergency cases. So with emergency cases, a lot of processes, you know, um, sh- sort of cut off so we can be as uh, swift as possible to move somebody. So the remo- the kind of in- inability to undertake the face-to-face interviews because not only, um, you know, basically we can't have states visiting the deep field, for example, at this point in time, um, and this remote processing and um, some pivoting of Resources, which I, I think you know, Sally has also done with their team of pivoting resources that have been returned to capital and come, and then they can be pivoted to be doing remote interviewing. Um, so again, it's it, it there's it has been a moment I think in terms of us thinking, well, what else do we need to do collectively? And then obviously, you know, the the, the travel facilitation, what needs to be done there? We have uh, some complex things like travel documents that need to be issued. Uh, by a consulate, and if the consulate's not there, how can we overcome some of these quite practical things? Exit visa arrangements with states. So we've had some success, and I, but I think we've still got a, a fair amount of work to do to really make that an extremely sort of a smoother process than than we than we have at the moment. But um, that I think taking forward some of the stuff that we've seen in the context of emergency resettlement and expanding it to the normal caseload, I think is is key for us at the moment. Thanks, Kate. That's really interesting
0: to hear. Malika, let's turn back to you now. How are refugee communities and civil society organisations responding to the needs that have been created by the resettlement freeze?
3: Generally, there is a weak, um, non-comprehensive refugee communities and civil society uh, organisations response because the response is focusing on messages, emails, webinars and online services targeting a very small portion of the refugee communities who are able to read and have computer knowledge. The human face-to-face interaction elements are missing, ignoring the majority, many of whom are illiterate in their own language, uh, and they are the most vulnerable in these uh, communities. Um, Also, the COVID-19 pandemic happened all of a sudden, there were no plans for immediate responses and provision of uh, needed services for refugees. So um, health and settlement case workers are mostly trying to find solutions on an ad hoc basis. Also, there is a lack of early consultations and engagement of community members, which made refugee communities reluctant and not actively involved. involved. Um, Lack of understanding and addressing the misinformation channels and spread of rumors that built through informal uh, links and family connections from inside and outside Australia uh, are often more trusted than public institutions. And this has to be addressed because it provides the wrong information to the community. There is also lack of understanding of the social ties their mechanism of operations between community members, uh, that's you know, weddings, funerals, intergenerational relations, and its negative impact on controlling the pandemic. So they know that, uh, the community know that it's not allowed you know, to go and visit, visit uh, in large numbers, but still, you know, because they feel that they are committed, they do. Therefore, uh, the low level of English and or digital literacy made it harder to reach many members of the community. Despite those challenges, there is a strong community support for vulnerable members and among families. So lately, uh, or lately, awareness about the pandemic uh, improved greatly. Uh, many welfare organizations are doing a great job in providing material and information support. However, Those services can be improved by employing and training more bilingual and uh, bicultural community workers who can share public health messages that create behavioral changes, safety, and improve well-being of uh, refugee communities. To achieve achieve those goals and to continue providing these essential services and knowledge, community-based organizations need more access to resources, mainly uh, financial support. And I hope that this will be achieved. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much for those insights, Malika. Paul, I'll turn back to you now and just ask what the impact of COVID-19 has been on the organisations themselves that support and advocate for resettled refugees. And will they be able to bounce back, do you think, when things are back up and running again?
4: Yeah, thanks, Jane. Um, I mean, as people listening will know, the on-arrival support to resettle refugees is um, offered through the Humanitarian Settlement Program, or HSP, as it's known, which is funded by the Department of Home Affairs and, and is conducted in different regions uh, or coordinated by five NGOs in different regions and uh, also involving um, local partners in different parts of the country. Um, and as the uh, support offered through HSB continues for up to 18 months after a refugee arrives, um, depending on the level of need of the person, um, refugees who arrived last year um, are still receiving support and obviously those who arrived up to March as well. Now HSP funding is based on a fee for service model, um, so this means that as the number of refugees being supported through the program declines, you know, as um, given that there are no new arrivals and people you know who arrived last year are moving out of the program, so as the number declines, so too does the level of income for the HSP services. And You know, this is a major problem for the NGOs involved and and also particularly for, you know, some of the smaller local partners that they work with. And it's a problem that's actually getting worse week by week. Um, There's been some talk about the Department of Home Affairs um, offering additional support to agencies, and there was some flexibility um, in March and April uh, to support... um, uh, um, to, to look at uh, some more flexibility in supporting people who'd, who'd arrived just as the pandemic hit. But in, in general terms, the additional support, uh, w- well, agencies are still waiting for news as to whether or not they're going to receive uh, additional support through through this uh, period. And the end result is that um, uh, some staff working in HSP services have already lost their jobs Um others have had their hours cut um, and that many of the jobs which have continued are actually being supported through the JobKeeper wage subsidy and of course the JobKeeper uh, subsidy concludes at the end of September unless there's a uh, an alternative decision from the government and of course by then the income from you know from HSP services to the key NGOs will have reduced further so um, there's a serious financial issue um, not only developing, but an even bigger issue financially uh, from October for the HSP agencies. And so clearly, you know, there is a a pressing need for this to be reviewed by government. Um, And and of course, you know, money has been allocated for HSP, you know, within the budget. Um, And I think, you know, many people within the refugee support sector would like to see the Department of Home Affairs allocate some of the funds that it actually has already budgeted for. Uh, to support um, the agencies to to be able to retain staff and, uh, and to re- remain ready to to restart once the um, refugee resettlement program starts again, um, and of course also you know for the services that are being offered now, um, things are more complicated uh, with the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, you know uh, traditionally uh, uh, a significant degree of the support that's offered to newly arrived. Refugees happens in group settings, uh, different forms of group orientation and training. And of course that um, has needed to be replaced with individual you know, or family support. Um, there's also, you know, much of the support is online. And of course, um, you know, the uh, computer literacy of newly arrived refugees varies greatly. And so quite a bit of time is being spent by HSE staff, HSP staff in um, supporting refugees to navigate computer technology and be able to access services online um, Uh, in in addition to, you know, helping people, uh, you know, with the language barriers uh, that exist in accessing uh, mainstream services. So, yeah, basically what uh, organisations in the sector are hoping is that the Department um, of Home Affairs and the the government um, more broadly will actually see that there is a need for them to be supported because we could be facing um, a very, very significant loss of um, people and expertise, um, particularly in about three months' time um and uh yeah and of course that's going to be very hard to replace i mean if if there is support now for the services um uh key staff will be able to be retained um if the agencies are left in a position where they're unable to or they're forced to lose even more staff um, then as the program ramps up again of course uh, people are going to have to be recruited and trained um, and that process is actually going to slow down the capacity of uh, the key agencies to be able to You know, quickly ramp up to uh, as the program, you know, hopefully um, gets restored to its current levels uh, in the near future.
0: Thank you, Paul. I mean, the ramifications of this and the kind of, you know, knock on effects um, you've just made so clear there. Um, Kate, we've had a a question for you. and it's, it's also about resources, but of a different kind, will UNHCR be considering cash grants for people in the resettlement pipeline to assist them during this prolonged period?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And, and clearly, it's also going to link to the level of resources that are available to offer cash-based assistance to refugees globally, uh, particularly in labor numbers. But Uh, Since COVID, I think there's been 65 um, UNHCR operations that have adjusted their cash-based assistance. It won't necessarily uh, be in alignment with those that are pending resettlement, but um, generally speaking, you know, for all of us, there's been uh, a lot of, uh, you know, new instruction to the field about how we consider cash-based assistance, um, you know, in, in countries, obviously, where there there is real gaps in their ability to be included in national systems, so not necessarily in countries countries like Australia but in, in countries in, in, in the in the large hosting states. Um, so there's a, been a general practice, and and, and we've got kind of new reporting tools. I guess where we're really looking at all of these implications of COVID. You know, sexual gender-based violence. What's happening in that space? What's happening in access to territory? Uh, what's happening in terms of inclusion into health systems and such? So I think there's this very kind of uh, new level of heightened awareness about the direct impacts of COVID and, and the cash act, access to cash and um, the reduction in livelihoods is obviously um, a part of that. But there, there's there's more information online in terms of what UNHCR is doing in that space. Thanks,
0: Kate. Paul, a question for you. Um, It seems that COVID-19 has given false and panic justification to voices of xenophobia and nationalism, especially at our borders. What discourses can we adopt to try and overcome these, especially in the context of resettlement?
4: I think um, a key thing is not to be too panicked by the fact that um, people who've long um, been opposed to a refugee program will use COVID nineteen, you know, as a their, their latest justification to their opposition. Um, I think on the, I mean, it's a little hard to assess, you know, what um, broader community attitudes, um, uh, you know, ha- how they're tracking. Um, but clearly, I think. Uh, the challenges of COVID nineteen have encouraged people to actually think about um, responsibilities to one another in a new way. I think, um, and which can certainly support um, the refugee and humanitarian program, um, to, you know, as it's restored. You know, but you see again and again, um, you know, the role that uh, political leadership can play. Um, you know, I think the uh, you know, if you just contrast. Um, how things have panned out in Australia and New Zealand in comparison to the United States. You know, you can see that political leadership means a lot. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I would certainly hope that um, you know both sides of politics in Australia are strongly committed to um, a strong uh, offshore resettlement program. I mean, obviously there's there's a whole lot of you know it's a bit of a different in, debate in relation to asylum, but the offshore resettlement program is something that um, both Uh, major political parties have long um, claimed as something which they strongly support. And I think it's important for those of us who care about um, this program to, you know, to continue to engage constructively, not be too spooked about, um, you know, negative and xenophobic voices, um, you know, and to uh, uh, keep encouraging, you know, the the current government and, and the opposition to you know, to, to keep continue with Australia's, you know, modest but important um, refugee resettlement program. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it ultimately, uh, yeah, the, the way in which the our political leaders respond to any uh, negative sentiment you know, is, is going to have the biggest impact. But, um, yeah, we need to be speaking up as citizens ourselves and encouraging the, the government to return to business as normal. I mean, the government wants to encourage... All aspects of Australian life to return to business as normal as quickly as possible. So I think it's a reasonable aspiration for the refugee resettlement program to return to business as normal as quickly as possible as well.
0: Thank you, Paul. That's that's a positive outlook, and you're right. We, at least in New South Wales, anyway, we're we're almost back to normal. So um, so yes, let's hope that the same thing starts to happen in this area as well. Um. I guess a final question is, do we know what other countries are planning to do in the resettlement space in the near future? Um, anyone who might like to, to respond to that, um, I can hand over to you.
1: Kate? I can make a couple of comments, but um, as part of the meetings that Paul referred to that have been going on in recent weeks, there's a, a sort of an annual kind of tour de table of countries and where they're at in terms of their commitments. Uh, and uh, I think you know, there. All I guess many states, some states are still moving with their programs. They're um, and making uh, different efforts and and combined sort of efforts of bringing in emergency cases and uh, trying to to manage perhaps those from certain locations which might be more movable than others. But um, I think it would be a, a uh, as a general point, um, all states are indeed you know reflecting on the impacts um, of of what's what's happening with COVID in terms of, you know, the logistical constraints, the potential um, economic constraints, uh, public confidence issues and such. So, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll continue to be, I think, quite a contested area for us, which, you know, in some ways is a setback because we've really invested in growing resettlement. You know, when I, you know, look back a dozen years, we had a dozen countries, we've moved up to, I think, at a height, about 37 countries involved in resettlement you know, it takes a lot to keep that engagement and keep those investments uh, from those countries and indeed investments in the whole, the systems uh, as a whole, as as Paul's mentioned in relation to the post-arrival component, which really is the real resettlement, not the moving of the person, but what happens after they come and they get to start that life afresh. So I think we have challenge times ahead, but um, we're full of uh, optimism that we can make the best of it.
0: Well, we'll hold on to that optimism in that case I think that's the main thing we can do and given the time I would like to thank each of you once again for your expert views it's been a a really enlightening panel we very much appreciate your time and expertise so Kate, Sally, Malika and Paul thank you thank you to our audience and we hope to see you all again at a future Caldor Centre
1: webinar goodbye